Blog Talk Radio. I was, uh, you know, since I was in, you know, on my trip in Belize, 
so Parker Smith will join us shortly. I want to greet everyone, of course, in the name of peace, which is a universal agreement of all the prophets. They all said peace. We're still looking for this peace that the world can seem to bring to us. As I said before, Parker Smith will join me shortly. He is my resident analyst, and I utilize his expertise extensively since I was on the ground here because he's in tune with the body politics as well as the social, political, socio-economical dynamics of this country. One of the few brothers who have an enlightened, an enlightened position as to what, in, what impacts this country and its development. As I traveled all over this country from north, west, east, south, I am amazed. I'm I'm amazed that uh that um I'm amazed. I say to myself, how does this country ever get anything done? How does how does it develop itself? How does it get out of its way, if you will? Because it seems like time has frozen still, even though elite has access to unparalleled technology in terms of social media and other technological advances that the rest of the world has, believe is still for all intents and purposes suspended in a time warp. And try as I might, I am still trying to out why that is. Everywhere I go, it's the same tune that I hear all over again. Oh, this the believe. Don't worry about that. So we do it, yeah. It's almost like there's an acceptance of mediocrity. There's an acceptance of things will go haywire or things will not run efficiently, effectively, and economically. And this is a team right across from the Rio Hondo to the SARS too. The people seems to be accepted, have a tacit acceptance that the leaves move to its own music. Now, I am not suggesting that the leaves ought to get into warp speed and do things at a, a rate that's not comfortable or at a rate that is not coherent with what the local realities are on the ground. Certainly, that's not what I'm saying. I'm merely amazed that this country is able to develop and get to the point where it is, given the mentality of the folks, given the mentality of the governing oligarchs in this country. And you know, it's just something that um that I observe. I mean it's not something that is that I'm trying to suggest that it's wrong or suggest that it's it's somehow debilitating. It's part of our social construct, certainly. But it's just interesting to observe how things get done in this country. And we talk about routine stuff. This one on one personal connection 
that everyone seems to value. Everyone and everyone wants to name drop. Okay, well, no, just call this one here. Just call it for something simple, routine that you would just have to fill an application out, pay your money and wait, or fill, put, fill your application out, go pay a fee, and that would have been it. So, I mean, I don't understand what is the deal. And I, I you know, as a part, as you know, as someone who has degrees in public policy, and I have to wonder, I said, okay, well, oftentimes when I do an analysis of beliefs, I try not to be so circumspect as it relates to, to what can what's applicable vis-a-vis the theory and what is practical that will that can be instituted here on the ground. Because when you formulate policy and you try to implement it, there's always going to be other attendant variables that invariably gonna pop up to either argument the policy that you're trying to institute or, or implement, or it's going to have an impact on it where you're going to have to reevaluate that policy and perhaps make some changes to, to what you're trying to do. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where you have to wonder about that because, like I said, um, believe move to its own tools. And one of the things that I try to do when I since I'm here was to be very patient, humble, and just observe and have conversation with local folks. I think I call it down south, you know, like some brothers up north, some people out west, and so forth in the capital, brothers in the inner cities, BDF at checkpoints, that sort of thing. And just to get a gauge of where this nation is as far as its development. A lot of things are happening in this ground, on the ground here in Belize. I mean, there was this huge, well, I call it, they say a budget debate. For me, it was more of a talk of town, if you will, where there was a lot of posturing and grandstanding, a lot of drama, but short and specific as far as the budget debate. Two days of that. Then you had, you know, because they had it in the House of Representatives and also the Senate. So, so it was essentially, I believe, like more like closer to three days but only because the Senate debate was not publicized on the TV. But you saw these people who represented us get up. And, you know, it was comical almost. It was almost like witnessing the taste of the absurd because you know, these, are, these are people that, uh, um, that represent us. There's a guy called Boots. I mean, like, I'm thinking to myself, who looks like a guy called Boots? Their very name would suggest would suggest something that uh, you know, if they would call me boots, I'd be like, what the, what on earth is going on here? But I mean, I'm not trying to disparage anyone, please, uh, respectfully. So I'm only suggesting that I'm only mentioning that well, as I observe this debate on TV. I was amazed to see the characters, the cast of characters, almost like a motley crew, if you will, that were talking and going back and forth. Um, you know, as, as it relates to our religious development, but I'm not going to be critical, and so I don't want anybody to inbox me and say, "Oh, you're being this, you're being that," because I, that's not my intention. I'm merely passing an observation to what I saw as it relates to um, believe. But, but Paco is on the line. Paco, are you there? Paco. Yes, good morning. Good, 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 good. 
So as I was, I was just giving a little, you know, like I, I know you, I'm not sure if you heard the full extent of what I was saying, but I was just commenting on what, what are, what are on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the budget debate, well, if you want to call it that, for me it was more of a talk more than a debate because as I said, based on my observation, I thought it was high in drama with short specifics and substance, you know. Um, but what was your take on the budget debate in the in, in House of Representatives for the past two days, this, in this, this, this past week? Okay. Okay. Well, first off, Hubert, uh, thanks a lot for having me on. And uh, I would like to add that basically it, it, it wasn't a debate. It was more of a back and back forth, sort of, sort of, uh, insults you, you insult me type of thing. Hold on one second, man. I think we're going to go here. Okay. okay. But in actuality, the shows. And I think it's indicative of the entire situation in regards to the way matters are handled governmentally. I totally agree with you on that part, Parker, because um, there was a lot of back and forth and and posturing, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of uh, the members of this, you know, this body on Independence Hill, who were just, in fact, regurgitating prepared texts or regurgitating um, what they might have, what they were instructed to do, but I didn't see anyone. Well, let me be fair. There was very little individuals who showed a commanding understanding of the budget, of, of a budget process and how that worked and the impact it have on a country's economy. Um, what would you say about that? I would agree wholeheartedly. Because, and I say that so because, look, let's examine something very closely here. A budget that, if you present a budget, okay, because you hear a billion dollars, that sounds like a lot of money. But if it's, if it's not, if it's not allocated properly or allocated effectively, economic economically, then you know, it's a waste of time. Because, for example, our our GDP, our gross domestic product, is has a direct correlation to our debt that we owe to the rest of the world or to to foreign donors, to foreign um, lenders. So if you have a, a gross, if you have a GDP to debt ratio of more than say 100%, then you may as well just pull your budget out the door because that means for every dollar that you earn, well let's say you have, let's say you earn, let's say you earn a, a dollar, and your, G, your GDP to debt ratio is 50 percent. That means for every dollar you earn, you only have 50 cents to to spend on needed resources to the people such as uh, healthcare, education, public safety, infrastructure development, and so forth. But if, but if you have a GDP that's well over 100%, that means for every dollar you earn, your treasury essentially doesn't have any money left to spend on essential services owed to the people. And that was what was not lost to me because I'm saying to myself, okay, yeah, your GDP is 
is, is over a billion dollars, but you forget to mention your debt servicing that you owe. And not to mention, I'm not even including the, super, the, the re- renegotiated Superman that makes it even more insidious on the overall uh, debt to GDP. So it's almost like they were going through uh, an exercise in futility because how are you going to, first of all, how are you going to pay for all these things that you that you, that you you allocating funds for? That's number one. Number two, where are you going to get the resources to even begin to access some of these things? So unless you're going to do one, raise more taxes, which in which case you're going to put it on the backs of the police pool, or two, you're going to go back, back cap in hand to foreign lenders and donors. I don't see anywhere else, I don't see any enlightened plan that Belize has for development. We have resources such as oil, but that's, that's neither here nor there because we're not benefiting from it. The, you know, the cost of doing business in this country is still prohibitive. So the whole budget debate for me, Parker, was, was almost like an exercise in futility, if you will. Well, I would have to agree. And please feel like you're still getting feedback because you're still on the time to do something else here in terms of my audio. But, but I, I would I say that you succinctly summed up the situation for what it what is. And, and the sad part, part of it is, is that I believe that probably, if not, not 60 to 70% of the representatives in the House probably don't even understand that. What did you just explain? Uh, again, again, the indicative of the situation we have here in the Middle whereby the party, party over country, but always prevails. And, and actually, we've had, had instances in the past where individuals have distinctly said, uh, not necessarily for the budget, but in regards to the laws or what have you, that they read it. They didn't understand that they voted for it. So, unfortunately, that is part of the power supporting me. And if people are serious about moving Belize forward, it definitely has to be addressed. Well, unquestionably, the budget is supposed to represent that particular regime that's in power, priorities as they understand it, on, as they understand it for the development of the country, but my thing is that, you know, we have, we're, we, we're such heavily in debt that we continue to incur more debt that I don't understand how we, you know, if we, okay, another thing that, that I found salient was the fact that um, we had a 0.2% or 0.7% uh, debt uh, GDP growth. Now, I'm not going to disparage it and laugh at it, but it's comical because a 0.7, and less than 1% GDP, GDP growth. Again, what impact is that? that that's going to be swallowed by whatever foreign debt that you have anyway. And so by the time you, you try to filter that down, because I know we have this, this top-down uh, style of economics where it's supposed to be you know, in the hands of a few and they filter it down, by the time it gets down to the, to, to the working class, the poor working class majority, it's a fitness. It wouldn't even make an impact on, say, giving a health, proper health care to a rural area deep down south, or a school up north in Orange Walk or somewhere in Cayo that needs, you know, access to technology and 
and, and, and better uh, nutrition for the students if that's what they want to do. So I don't understand who really benefits from, well, I understand, I'm saying that rhetorically, but I understand who benefits from 0.7 GDP growth, those that have access to the centers of power. Because if you have a, believe it's such a specialized economy that unless you have the access and the wherewithal to, to, to get into the centers of power, you are essentially on the outside looking in. So who is, so when you're touting 0.7 GDP growth, yes, it looks good on paper, but in reality, if you take a stroll in the inner cities of South side of Belize City, Queen Square, Fort Loyola, Majestic Island, Pink Jungle, um, and I can go on, call it. And you say, well, gee, where is this 0.7 GDP growth is? Because it's certainly not in those communities. It's certainly not, and uh, it's certainly not in it, it, a revenue stream that's giving these residents a better quality of life. They're crime-infested areas, debilitating gang-banging, uh, locked down by the BDF in an apartheid-style lockdown. So where exactly is this? My question is, and I'm begging this question here, I'm begging this question, where is it from this 0.7 growth in GDP? Well, I must echo your sentiment, Invert, in terms of the 0.7% GDP growth rate, it's definitely nothing to write home about. I think that any government that attempts to, to tout that as an achievement should be ashamed of themselves. I think that the people ourselves should hold them accountable. Of course, you know, it's impacted by a lot of different factors, our external debt and what have you. But the bottom line is this. <clears throat> we have to be realistic when assessing these things. And it's nothing to write home about. In terms of who is benefiting from it, uh, well, you and I both know the answer to that. It's the very, very select few who are either politically in connected and or uh, part and parcel of the, the ruling class, as I should say, in Belize, a very, very small hand, handful of people. So definitely, you know, that 0.7 growth rate it's, it's just it's abysmal, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, I, I like someone to call a spade a spade. And the bottom line is this. That is sub, 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 it's unsatisfactory. And with regards to the budget itself, I believe that um, Dr. I was on my show last week, he pointed out something that was quite salient inasmuch that he mentioned, you know, looking at all these numbers that are being put, that are being put out in front of us and, and, and or what have you, but it fails to recognize the fact that we have two outstanding debts out there that are lingering, that are hovering above our heads, and I should say the future positions, and I'm referring to the supposed privatization of BTL and also BEL. Mm -hmm. if, if anyone understands uh, the, the, the manner in which these transactions occur, although we haven't heard about it lately, Trust me, the debt has gone nowhere, and it's more than likely is accruing interest. So at the end of the day, Belizeans, regular Belizeans like yourself, myself, regular taxpayers, this country, 
are going to end up footing the bill for PL and BEL. You see, the government is involved in this, this proverbial practice of smoke and mirrors. They want to bait people into thinking that everything is, well, okay, everything is all right, things are looking brighter. I'm not a purveyor of the gloom and doom syndrome, but I'm, I am a realist. And the bottom line is that the debt that is owed to our creditors and also the debt that is owed to the previous owners of the BL and BTL have gone nowhere and they're only getting bigger as time goes by. And I think those are some of the things that um, the electorate must look at in terms of the performance of this administration and this government. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think also, too, Paul, just to touch on that that you just mentioned, um, the fact that, okay, we renegotiated, we renegotiated uh, the super balance, but what people don't feel, well, what the religion people may or may not fail to understand is the fact that we, the, 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 the coupons that were suspended, the payment, the interest payment that was suspended for that year that saved us, saved like maybe over $27,000, did not go anywhere. All it, would, all it did was sack it on to the, at the end of the bond payment itself. So they, they renegotiated, yes. So the interest payment that was that was compounding or doubling every every you know every every year, rising to like maybe two, two, two basis points. Now, yes, we have a set point, set interest point. I'm, I, I I need to see exactly what it is, but the fact is, whatever interest that coupon payment that was owed that was owed to Wall Street, they're not going to write that off the books. All they did was tack it on at the bottom end of the loan. So we're talking about a long-term debt that, brother. That's gonna be your daughter and her daughter's. You know, that's gonna be there like perpetually. Because I, I don't see there's no way giving our anemic performance, uh, uh, giving this country's anemic performance economically, as far as the economy is concerned. Where exactly we get the funds to pay off these things? So it, 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 it's almost like a, a, a dancing with the devil. Because on the one hand, yes, you negotiated the super bond payment, but on the other hand, all you did was defer. It for sometimes down the road, you, you, you kick the ball down the road as it were, because you, you didn't really solve that issue. And that, you need to understand that that is the direct correlation to your debt and your, and your growth in GDP. Because whatever debt you have invariably will, whatever debt you have invariably will always eat up whatever GDP growth you have. That's the fact, economics 101. Unless you can go with some creative way for that not to happen. Because these people want their money. So whether or not you deferred for 2014, 2017, 2024, at the end of the day, the, the debt is still there and you're going to have to deal with it. It's not, it's not this generation, it's not this regime. There's some regime down the, at some point down the road in, in the next cycle or, pre- or in coming, upcoming cycles will have to deal with, with the debt. And you mentioned BTL. And I'm, I, I scratched my head. I ran into a, a good friend of mine uh, in, in, in Belize City. So, you know, he sits on the uh, PUC or something, one of those bodies there, you know. So I was uh, asking him, I said, dude, how is it that you, explain to me in what world a telephone company is a public good, that you have to take it where the government has to take that over. We're talking about a telephone, a utility company telephone. But if you can't, seem to me, if you can't afford to have a telephone, then you shouldn't have it. And it's not something that, 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 that that's required, it's not something that that, that, that is, Public good, which by definition is non, uh, 
non-rival, non-exclusive, and it's, it's underwritten by taxpayers, so that means you can't enjoy it more than me. We're talking about a telephone. It should be based entirely on your affordability to own a telephone or to access that telephone. But it's not like a, a national good that if you don't have it, like say, electricity or education, public safety, public safety, affordable housing, health care, et cetera, et cetera, and, and those kind of things. So I am not sure. I, I'm still scratching my head as to how a telephone company gets taken over by, by the public, which is us, because government represents us, and in the name of saying it's going to make it more efficient, which it hasn't, in the name of saying it's going to be more effective, which it hasn't, in the name of saying it's going to be more economical, which it has not also. So what exactly are the benefits, if you will? And I'm asking this question rhetorically, Paco, about any government taking over a telephone company and, to, and touting it as if though it, it's, it's for the better good of the country. I simple, simply cannot, I'm not, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not no capitalist that, 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 that um, believes in the free market almost at any, at any point. I don't believe in the free market in the point where, where, it, where it hurts hurts the, uh, the poor working class majority. But I don't see any benefit, as far as I'm concerned, from BCL taking over by, by, the, by the public. To be honest with you, Hubert, no, I have not. And I think it all ties back into the, the entire concept of the modus operandi employed by successive administrations. I Based on my observation, I have deduced that governments and or administrations will do, they will act in a manner which is expedient for their purposes and their purposes first and foremost. With regards to the acquisition of BTL, I would tend to believe that that was more of a personal situation between the principles involved, whereby one, one held all the marbles, so to speak, but the other one, by, by virtue of his position, being that the, the leader of government, uh, pulled his trump card. But in pulling that trump card, what it did, in effect, was place a, an additional burden on the country of Belize. And again, as you said, we may not be seeing it right now, that debt has to be paid eventually. And I, I find that, you know, it's, I basically, I, I rack it up to selfishness with regards to those in positions of influence and power. Uh, with regards to my telephone bill, I, I certainly have not seen a reduction in, <laughs> in what I pay. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to understand the psychology that is employed by these politicians. Uh, they will do things to overtly, I should say, on the surface, attempt to engender a sense of nationalism or a rallying cry amongst the people when they feel as though they're in a situation where they're vulnerable. And I think that um, in the acquisition of BTO, that may have been one of the contributing factors, because I can recall distinctly the campaign going out saying that, oh, you know, this is, they're going to take over this company for the betterment of this nation, for the betterment of Belize, so Belizeans, so Belizeans can benefit, you know? And naturally, people will gravitate towards something like that, but if they're not 
lending critical analysis to the overall situation. They could get caught up in that nationalistic frenzy. And sometimes a nationalistic frenzy, especially when dealing with economic matters, can be quite detrimental if you do not apply your appropriate due diligence. Never let it be said that government doesn't apply its due diligence. I think quite the contrary. The administrations that we've seen in Belize have very tactfully and very, um, how can I put this, very, very, hmm, <laughs> I want to make sure I use the correct word to describe what I want to say, selectively apply their due diligence when making such decisions. And unfortunately, what I've seen is that the, the underlying motivation for these decisions and the due diligence that is put in towards making them is not based on the foundation of saying what is best for this nation and the people. And I think therein lies the crux of the matter with regards to some of the challenges we face amidst this, this level of governance that we're experiencing right now. You can see it manifest in many different ways. And just for the record, I'd like to highlight that my criticisms, my criticisms and my analyses are directed towards both parties that dominate the political realm. I want to make that absolutely clear because we're at a juncture right now, <coughs> in the next couple of years, constitutionally, general elections are mandated, supposed to happen. And anyone who's paying attention to the goings-on politically in Belize will notice that the opposition, PUP, right now, they're sort of amping up things. The leader of the opposition is always on the air, he's talking. At this juncture, he's saying the right things. He's saying the things that people want to hear, right? But it's one thing to say, and it's another thing to do. Now, my experience with the political environment in Belize, and this is no knock on the leader of the opposition per se, personally, because personally, I think he's an all right guy. But within the scope of things, I intuitively know that in order for Belize to move forward, in order for the status quo to be not only be challenged, but to be substantively changed, that change must come from outside of the prevailing two political parties. And the reason being is that the underlying factor is what these political parties do are not only politically expedient, but it is also steeped in the fact that they must maintain the status quo. Because if the status quo is offset, then the apple cart must turn over. And if that happens, then they lose influence, they lose power, and they lose the overall thing that, well, what unfortunately politics and Belize has sort of morphed into, and that's control. So I think that it's important and it's very instructive that Belizeans, both at home and abroad, take these things into consideration. It's very unfortunate. Um, this is just sort of a segue you've written. I, I guess we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but let's look at that situation involving Mr. Penner. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was taken aback when I looked on the news and I saw that, well, he had a, a crowd of people around him. You and I both know that that was a rental crowd, right? Well, mm -hmm. it just goes to show the level of cognizance that our people have with regards to holding these individuals accountable. Now, someone told me yesterday, they said, well, Paco, you have to understand that time's hard out here, and people, they, 
they need only hands out, they need only something, if they get only run, well, they'll do it. Well, I understand time's hard. Don't get me wrong. But I think that certain things have to be fundamental. Certain things have to be inalienable. And when you're talking about Elysian citizenship, our nationality, our patronage, our heritage, those things cannot be placed on the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. And in my, in my humble opinion, Elvin <coughs> Penner is a traitor. And I say that very bluntly. Because what he did, and it's, it's common knowledge right now, is that he prostituted our nationality. The facts are there. Anyone who is willing to look at the facts definitively can see it. So why would I, as a Belizean, as hungry as I may be, as hard as times may be, sell myself out to go and surround this man as though he's some sort of savior to this country? And when I saw that, I'll tell you the truth, Gilbert, it completely disgusted me. It really did. Because it's demonstrating that, I guess, the extent to which the psyche of some of the Belizean electorate is still under the, 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 the grasp and the whole of these politicians. It's inexcusable. You work? Hello? Hello, Hubert, are you there? Hello, hello.
Yes, hello, Hubert. I don't know if you're if you're hearing me. I, I guess we're experiencing some experiencing some technical difficulties. But um, let's see if we can if we can work it out. I was talking about my disgust with uh, Elden Penner, and basically, he, you know, it's just this man is 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 there smiling at the camera. It's, it's just really really disconcerting and, and disgusting. It's sickening. Because basically, like, this matter, take, take the police people and, and, and make jokes, you know? And as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to my nationality, my citizenship, my heritage, my culture, it's, it's nothing to joke about. It's no joking matter, you know? And I would like to, at this point, also give kudos to, to Kola because they took a bold step that was very much necessary in terms of the way this entire matter has been handled from a governmental standpoint it is for the lack of a better description it is symptomatic of a cover-up distractions and just basically trying to keep people in the dark. I don't know if, you, if anyone is hearing this, but um, we are trying to work on the technical difficulties that we're having right now. Okay. I understand that I'm on live right now. But getting back to the, the issue at hand. Yes. Hilden Petter, it's as though he's taking this entire matter for a joke, and I have to give kudos to, to Cola, because they took a bold step, one that evidently no one else was willing to take in this matter. Now, how it uh, pans out should prove quite interesting. Uh, of course, there are apparent instances of individuals trying to run interference or what have you. And yesterday, there was a very, very interesting call that came in. I think it was on Krem or Logan, I can't remember who it was. But someone had pointed out with regards to the delineation of the delineation of responsibilities involving a minister versus that of the Minister of State. And specifically, they're referring to the Ministry of Immigration in which you have current minister of and the former minister of state, Joseph Penner. And the person posed a question, if I recall correctly, in terms of ministerial discretion. Now, we all know what Penner did. There's no question about that. But the way the person first question was, well, in, in the scope of things of how it developed, Was Penner vested with that, I guess, that, that amount of payway to make such a decision? And if not, where does the buck ultimately stop? You know, they say heavy is the head that wears the crown. And in this particular instance, the head of that ministry has gotten house. So the question begs what level of culpability does the minister? embody with regards to this scenario. 
it's really something that is noteworthy, and I think it should be analyzed a bit further. Now, we can all see that from the, coming from the Ministry of Liberation, there appears to be a lot of them. A lot of things afoot, a lot of things going on that really haven't come to light. And I, I think it's by design. That's my personal opinion. I really believe it's by design. I can recall the, the, the entire scandal first burst that the minister and the prime minister were saying that, oh, there's no need for an investigation. He's already been punished, this and that. Totally disavowing what the law says. And it's, uh, it's very, very important that we all again, take a critical look at the, the elements involved in this situation. If anybody out there should know by now, you cannot, I don't care if you support red, green, blue, yellow, orange, or what have you, you cannot take what these politicians say as gospel. You can't take it for a face value because the majority of them have an underlying motivation. And that motivation more than likely is not derived from bringing forth the best interests of people. Okay, um, this is your to 
kind of uh, ease off and not remain as competitive as possible because there's not that motivation. And it's very unfortunate. I, I have found that over the years, and I'm speaking in general terms with regards to the nation of Korea, I found that a lot of, a lot of our people are not, aren't really too keen on competition. And for those who have lived abroad, those who have had experiences in other countries, you know that competition is what drives the, the engine of an economy. Competition is, is critical. And unfortunately, in, in many respects, we, we don't have that level of competition here in Canada. But all the same, again, getting back to the, the situation with, with Kula, I don't know if you're hearing me, Gilbert. I don't know if you heard what I said earlier, but I just wanted to dig up Cola for taking the uh, Yes, I, I can hear you, but it's very, very choppy. Very, very choppy. Yeah. I just want to tell you what number one else is gears a little bit. Uh, we're still experiencing some technical difficulties, but uh, once he put it back on, we'll pick up the, the conversation. But just going through the, the, the news of the week, I was totally, totally taken aback. And for those of you who may be standing up right now, I advise that you sit down because I'm going to talk about a topic right now. It just completely blew my mind. Now, you know that um, a writ of mandamus was, was issued with regards to Commissioner of Police to instruct him that he must do his job with regards to the penis situation. And, well, I mean, that within itself is, is bad. It's bad because it had to go to that, that point. It's good that, in fact, the powers that be took the appropriate steps in order to ensure that this is documented and he was uh, instructed to carry out his duty as commissioner of police. But what really knocked me off my feet was when I looked at the, the newspaper, when I looked at the newspaper this week, and I saw, I couldn't believe my eyes, that it says that the commissioner is planning to appeal the decision of the court. Oh my God. I mean, I've had a loss of four words, man. Come on. Let's be real. No, there can be nothing else fueling that fire or motivating such a move than politics. You know, I, I, I feel bad to even have to discuss this matter, but that is one of the problems with our society. We're all too courteous. We're all too, um, especially when it comes to politicians and people in positions of authority, we're all too gracious and we, want to, we don't want to offend anyone or what have you. But the bottom line is this. This is believe. We have to look out for the best interest of the people. And it's a downright shame if what is being reported in the newspaper is true. I don't know whether or not it's true. That is my disclaimer. But if it comes to be that I see that an appeal is being made against the of Mandamus, I think that that is the point where, unfortunately, 
we must call a very big spade for what it is. And that would signal to me that individuals have placed political priorities at the top of their list as opposed to doing what they should be doing by virtue of their their appointment or their job. And that within itself would be a, a real travesty. So let us sit back, let us wait and see what happens. Maybe it's a case of uh, the information not coming out accordingly. I certainly hope it is. But if it isn't, I will tell you that Tunisians, both at home and abroad, that is a very telling sign. Hubert, are you there? Okay. Hopefully we can get Hubert back. Well, switching gears a little bit, I have come to understand that a certain individual is currently in the, in the country of Belize. And this person is, I think, the EU ambassador. And I'm just going to put up my information here to make sure I have it right. I, I don't want to misinformation, which has become so prevalent in our society nowadays. Are you back, Hubert? Okay, yes. still on. Hello? Yeah, what you were saying about, um, you said it. We all know that Guatemala bowed out of the um, 
referendum for the schedule for the 13th of October last year. And they have, as we say, we have come again. They have come back now. And unfortunately, it's so unfortunate that our, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs appears to be more than willing to acquiesce once again, bend over backwards, and accommodate these people. Now, getting back to what I was saying about the visit of this ambassador from the EU, when I say that she, she is missing out on a great opportunity, I'm speaking specifically in terms of her meeting with grassroots groups like the Belize Territorial Volunteers and Mr. Will Mejia. This man up on the, on the front line, you know? This man goes out to the, the remote areas. Yeah. He sees for himself. He documents these things. You and I both know you work because we've gone with it, right? And what better, yeah. what better source could she use as a means by which to get a true feeling of the pulse of the people as to what's going on regarding Guatemala's incursion into Belize, the systematic weeping and pillaging of our natural resources, both flora and fauna, and whatnot. She's supposedly going to leave tomorrow. It says she's departing on the 30th. And, you know, I just really wish that something could be worked out. I know that we intuitively can't... Come again, Hubert? I say the
And we brought it up yesterday. I was on our news show at the tail end, so we didn't get a chance to really um, respond. But it's a living under essentially another government the
Uh, this is this is Stewart Pipersburg broadcasting live from Belize via internet. Along with my yeah, Smith, and we're discussing some of the events that, in fact, that impact the development of this country. Um, my brother, you can you hear me? Uh, well, I, I can hear you intermittently, uh, Hubert. It's kind of like very choppy. Let's well, let's just here's what we'll do. We'll just you know we'll just here's some of the topics we want to touch on as we as we see the next hour. We want you know, just so I can give the audience the opportunity to hear. Um, for example, you know we want to touch on the uh, EU sanctions against Belize and fisheries. We want to go with the PM takes on with Penner. We also want to talk about. Uh, Satim and U.S. Capital Oil, you know, so we can, let's start off with the, the PM takes, uh, the, the PM uh, sounding off on what he's taking.
question involving Penner and the PMC on it. I mean, for those who have eyes to see, you can see, you can clearly see that the PM is politicking. And it's, it's, it's a damn shame, to be honest with you. Um, if I recall correctly, uh, during one of his interviews regarding this particular matter, he was saying something to the effect of, well, it's in the system now and we'll see uh, how it goes. Again, for him to say this at that juncture, it, it carries virtually no weight based on what his actions or his intentions were beforehand. The first thing, thing first was that he needed to try uh, circle the wagon, the political wagons, and prop up this matter. So what he said is, is just basically fact. But it's no feather in his cap because if, if things were to have gone his way based on the way he handled things from the onset, he would have never reached this point. So, you know, again, he's a politician. I don't hold any of them in very high regard, uh, basically because of the way they go about doing things. Deception, untruth, half-truths, and basically trying to do whatever they can to make maintain influence and power. So that's pretty much it in terms of my perspective on the PM's view of where we stand in terms of Penner. And again, kudos to Kona for taking the appropriate steps to make sure that something, yeah, but something in fact happens. My, my, my thing was, you know, this, okay, clearly this, this gentleman Mr. Penner committed fraud and poetry. There's no, I don't think that, I mean, there's serious allegations, certainly, but it's clear that he did not have any idea or know this gentleman, Mr. King, that was in jail. But yet, instead, he went ahead and he, he vouched for him and essentially forged an application and, and a signature. So, I'm, you know, the, the thing that me, that's why when I was talking in the beginning of the show, I was saying it's amazing the way this country does business because um, here we have the prime minister himself issuing kind of a his take on it, which he's entitled to, but it's almost like a confident thing that's saying, look, you could go. This is just an exercise in futility because, as far as I'm concerned, as an attorney, as a lawyer in this country. I don't see any grounds on which Penner can be convicted. And the thing that's interesting about that is because we have less than 2% conviction rate in this country. So it just goes to show that our whole jurisprudence, for the most part, is a joke. You know what I mean, Paco? Yeah, absolutely. Because why would the PM, why would the PM even prejudice? I know they asked the media asked him a question, but he could have said, in light of these proceedings, I will reserve my judgment until I don't want to rush to judgment. I will reserve my comment until until these proceedings have taken their course. But he has he didn't do that. He just went out he just went right ahead and issued his proclamation on where he stood. Again, I said he's entitled to it, but I don't think it was appropriate for him to do so. Well Hubert, you touched on a very state to me. Yeah. I just I don't think it was appropriate for him to, to do that, Paco. Well, Hubert, you, you touched on a very salient point, and you have to understand. You know, I make no excuses for his actions because I agree with you. But you have to understand the psyche of these politicians. They're going to do whatever they can to, to manipulate, to prejudice, to undermine, 
um, whatever the situation may be, in their favor. And by virtue of him saying that, everyone knows that he's a well-accomplished attorney. Right? There's no question about that. And by virtue of him even saying that, although it was in very, very, very poor taste and very, very poor judgment, the ends justify, justify the means for these individuals. And he, know, he knows that in saying that publicly, he can influence at least a portion of the population. Right? Thank God his influence mm-hmm. isn't so great that it, it, it affected everyone because evidently it didn't call it the steps to still go through this action, even if it doesn't amount to anything, right? They still did it. And I'm very, very proud of them for that. But I think that his, what he did was intentional. It was definitely intentional. And whenever we're talking about the actions of politicians, it's imperative that we look at the underlying motivation for their actions. In his mind, of course, I can't speak for him personally, but based on my assessment of the situation, in his mind, first and foremost is to maintain that slim majority. And by any means necessary, without overtly breaking the law, right, without doing something that is criminally negligible, I'm quite certain that he thought in his mind, well, you know what, let me put this out there and it will resonate with certain elements of human society. Again, I don't agree with what he did. But you know, I don't agree. I know you do. I certainly none of us do. But I just find it interesting that you, you talk about the leader, of the, the leader of the nation, and it's okay for him. I'm not suggesting that he has the freedom of speech to issue any kind of proclamation to influence public opinion if that's what he wants, so desire. It's, it's his, it's, it's his right. But I just don't think in this particular case that he should have reserved his comment until the proceedings of taking a course. But it seems to me there's a whole, I'm not going to accuse anyone of it, but some sort of stonewalling, because look, didn't the commissioner, you, uh, uh, in the Amandala, read something where by the commissioner of police, Mr. Wiley, have decided to challenge the Mandamus that, that was, you know, I mean, it, what is going on, brother? Because the commissioner essentially got the Mandamus to do his job, but now he's like saying, well, I'm going to challenge it because I don't think that it's right for me to do my job. I, I don't want to, that's why I'm interpreting it. How are you seeing that? Brother, I politics at the, at, the, at the foundation of that. It's, it's obvious that the, the commissioner of police is, is getting instructions from somewhere. And based on my assessment, you know, I mean, where else could it be coming from? Because the only ones that stand to do something substantial, once a true and bona fide investigation into the kind of situation is carried out, are those within the political realm. Apart from that, I can't see any other motivation for the commissioner of police to purposefully say that he's going to uh, appeal the judgment issued by the, the, the chief justice. It, it's mind-boggling, but then again, when you deal with Venetian politics, it's pretty much part of the course. And it's a sad testimony to where we stand as a, as a nation. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if he's, if he, okay, if he, he already has to be given directive from the court to do what is his constitutional duty and do what his administrative duty is by way of, you know, to protect and serve his citizenry, and now he's going back to court or telling the court that he wants to revisit it because 
perhaps he doesn't agree with it, perhaps the court was off in their ruling. I mean, to me, this is just like stonewalling or maybe just trying to, again, kick the ball, you know, to delay the procedures or to make it, to add more cumbersome litigation to it, to make the, to, 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 uh, it's very litigious. And that seems to be the, the nature of this particular regime. They, it's a very litigious regime. Because look, let, let's go off to the second thing. Okay, clearly, with the Mayans, down south, when Chief um, Justice Abdullah Conte had found precedent in, in, in Australia, a case in Australia, I believe, where the, that you entitled these indigenous Mayans down south are entitled to their, to their, to their, to their land. The indigenous people are entitled to the land. It's the ancestral land. But yet and still, after, as when he was the opposition, when his government was the opposition, when his regime was the opposition, they were on the side of the Mayans. But as soon as they got elected and got in power, they flipped. And more litigation. Seems to me this, this, because you talk about litigation, let's look at the litigation we talk about Parkhouse. We talk about litigation here with Sunny. We talk about litigation with DTL and DEL. We talk about litigation with, uh, with, this, with the commissioner and this, this, this thing. This is one regime that seems to enjoy litigation. It seems to be a very litigious regime. And who's making money off all this litigation? Highly connected minions and, 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 and cronies. So where does the line stop? You know, we, uh, everything in that doesn't have to be in a court of law. Everything doesn't have to be... I, I don't, this is where it gets me with, with, with this, with, with uh, Mr. Barra's government. He seems to enjoy utilizing the court. And I don't have an issue with utilizing the court. That's what they're there for. But, but it seems to me there's almost an, an ordinary amount of litigation that faces Belize's court on behalf of this particular regime. And the starting one is even more serious because, look, you can side with U.S. capital, big oil, Seems to me if you're going to take the position that U.S. capital oil can exploit resources for their benefit, because they're not benefiting the, 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 the campesinos, certainly they're not benefiting the, the, by the Belizean people, because look at the percentage that we have. It has no impact on our economy. It has no impact on our growth. Well, it has no noticeable impact on our growth domestic product based on the percentage that we're getting. And you're going to side with U.S. capital oil, big oil, which only have one purpose, Go to visit the um, the people in in, in uh, Nigeria with, with Dutch oil and see what mm-hmm. they have devastated devastated the environment and and leave those people destitute in exploiting oil down there in, in uh, Kensaria was was, a, was was one of the brothers who was who got killed in championing the cause of the Ugandan people down in, in Nigeria against the Dutch Royal, Royal Dutch Oil Shell. So there's abundance of evidence, Marco, that you do not side with the devil for a few dollars more. But this regime seems happy to do so. They're going to fight the Mayans all the way. Then I saw the attorney, the, uh, the, the guy who was speaking out, he has the audacity to be suggesting that the Mayans are being disingenuous and not being, and not being upright about how they, you know, about, you know, they're up, that they're only in it for the money. Well, well hello, what exactly is U.S. capital all in it for? For, for, for benevolence, for uh, altruism, if not, if not for the money. So why shouldn't the Mayas demand more of the economic pie if, they, if you're going to have a big, big uh, corporation, transactional corporation of use capital coming in to exploit your land and the resources under it? So he made it seem, what was, what was instructive to me, Paco, was 
this attorney perfume made it seem like though how dare those Mayas uh, want to do it for more money. It, it just leaves US capital the way it is because you know why are they going back for injunction when they're only trying to do it because they're trying to come up for, for more money. Do, do, do you see how these elements in this country are bought and paid for and that's why this country has a serious problem flopping? Yes, yes. Yes, very much so, Hubert. You, you touched on a, a very critical issue. And I think that in some of our discussions, we've referred to them as lawyer politicians. Uh, in the case of the gentleman who is the attorney for U.S. Capital Oil, I, that, that applies to him to a certain extent because he was a, once a, an aspiring politician. So we'll, we'll just label him a, a, an attorney former politician. But yes, I, I can see a clear pattern running through the, the length and width of this particular administration with regards to their propensity to seek mitigation in any and everything. And you very, very importantly pointed out that all of this mitigation, whether it be um, involving Satin and the Mayan ancestral lands, whether it be um, BTL, BEL, and their acquisition, and very importantly, whether it be dealing with the OAS, the ship market, the transit. Yes, the security also. And again, what I say to that humor is this we must analyze it from the perspective of getting into the minds of these lawyer politicians. And as you said, with all this litigation comes revenue for. Other, other politicians, or shall I say, politicians whose law firms are still active, and things of that nature. It, it's very, very insidious. And again, it's quite clear to me, and I think that it, it's becoming clear to a lot of other people, that these individuals are engaging in behavior which is facilitating elements of their private life. And it's really a shame. It's really, really a shame because, you know, I mean, we have situations that are pretty much clear-cut. Uh, with regards to the, the instance of the, the, the Maya leaders, I heard what the, the, the attorney for U.S. Capitol had to say. He was being extremely disingenuous, if not downright disrespectful. Um, again, these, these lawyers, a lot of them, what they do, they twist and turn and they manipulate and try and put out there for public consumption misinformation. I have no problem whatsoever with the Maya fighting to get their just due out of whatever revenues come eventually derived from oil exploration. But what I have a problem with is the way that U.S. Capital Oil and attorney put it out there. And he said quite clearly, he tried to put out there that this has nothing to do with Maya ancestral land. This has nothing to do with the environment. This has to do with money, bottom line. Maybe he was talking on behalf of his I just clients. I just you know? Maybe he mixed up his clients' mm -hmm. motives with that of the Maya, right? But as far as I'm concerned, yeah. you know, as our Maya brothers and sisters down south in Toledo, they have a viable claim. They have a viable claim from um, the standpoint of the environment, from the standpoint of conservation, and they definitely have a viable claim from the standpoint of revenues to be gained. But for the attorney for U.S. Capital Oil to put out there 
as though he's an expert on what the Maya's motivation is, for him to say that it's all about money, very disingenuous, and it speaks a lot to the lack of credibility that certain individuals have. So, basically, I firmly believe that in terms of the environment, that is a concern of my people. I also believe that in terms of their Mayan ancestral lands, yes, indeed, that is a concern. And yes, if any revenues are to be gained, then so be it. Let the Maya be able to gain whatever revenues they are due. And like you said, you were dealing all throughout Latin America and, and, and Africa. The people in the Niger River Delta, terrible, terrible situation mm-hmm. in terms of what, what petroleum, and, um, petroleum exploration has brought to that region. Talk about environmental degradation. Talk about health issues. Talk about a breakdown of the, the, the society and structures there, all due to the greed of these multinational corporations that are hell-bent on extracting as much of the natural resources as they can at any cost possible to the inhabitants the, that live in, in the area. It's a shame. You can look at um, places in Ecuador, right? Down south, in, in Central, I'm sorry, in South America. I mean, the track record of these companies is evident. They go in, they exploit, and if you have a government that does not hold up the task with regards to their environmental responsibilities to be accountable, they'll destroy your environment. Believe? Yeah, indeed. Cannot afford to have that. That's the prevailing modus operandi. And I, I salute the Maya brothers and sisters for, for fighting the good fight. I encourage them not to be discouraged. Because one of the tactics that these um, multinational co- corporations use is that they, they try to draw these things out through court. They want to draw it out and hopefully feel that the, the indigenous people, they, they either lose funding, they can't, they can't uh, compete with it, they can't stay up with the litigation costs, and things of that nature. So in terms of this, this situation, I advise our Mayan brothers and sisters to look at it as that of a, a marathon as opposed to a sprint. But when you're on the right side of whatever it may be, trust me, you have to see it true. Well, Steve Parker, the thing that I found interesting about the whole thing was the way this, this gentleman, who's also the Speaker of the House, I don't know if there's some kind of conflict in his public life versus private life. I mean, if you are, if you are involved in public in public. Uh, Public life seems to me that you should suspend all your activities dealing with the dealing with the with, with, with the uh, with the private because you see you will be definitely I don't think you could be fair and you would you can definitely be uh, it's a conflict there's an ethical conflict there as far as I'm concerned because how can you you be a speaker of the House of Representatives in a, in a public in one public hat then in the other in your private life you are litigating on behalf of used capital oil which is something that that the government it, it, it reeks to me of of, 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 of um, it, it reeks to me, Paco, of conflict of interest. Where a public official is known in his private life, yes, he has to earn a living, but to me, you should, once you decide that you're going to work in the public, in public domain, you should suspend all your business and legal uh, rights as far as uh, working you know, in, in private life, that is. You should, you should suspend, suspend those clothes not to have any apparent 
of, uh, of, of, of impropriety in terms of dealing with, with, with matters that are before the government or before the courts. Because how can you tell me that, okay, the government is fighting U.S. capital, uh, fighting the fight, they're on the, essentially on the, on the, on the side of U.S. capital oil, and this guy's going to come and opine, which he has a right to, on, on the Mayas and define the struggle as just a dollars and cents struggle. And even if it's a dollars and cents struggle, what's wrong with them fighting for more money as if those U.S. capital oil is this benevolent company that they should just accept whatever it is that U.S. capital oil decide that they want to give to them, whatever slice of the fire, whatever tennis that they decide they want to pass, just sit back with the Mayan brothers and sisters and so accept it because, you, after all, U.S. capital oil has a big interest at heart. What rubbish! That's essentially mm-hmm. what he was trying to chastise the Mayas for. Mm-hmm. That, they, that they're wrong for, for bringing up this thing again in court because U.S. Capital Oil has been doing this. ABC, of course, you don't expect him. But what I found very interesting, Marco, is the fact that he is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the government. Why is he in private life involved in a matter that's essentially for the courts, that's essentially the government? I don't get it. What's going on there? Yeah. Well, I, I can tell where, you. Where's the moral of I can, I can tell you, Hubert, that um, that particular individual and those of his ilk would differ with you. I am not a lawyer politician, much like yourself. We are not. So definitely we can see the potential for a conflict of interest there. But those individuals who subscribe to this entire um, rubric of, um, of um, <clears throat> excuse me, dealing with the courts, or promoting court action at all costs will see more than likely see nothing wrong with it. I think that um, there is conflict, there's a potential conflict there, and it, 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 it's for those of us who are not inclined in that way, we can see it, we can talk on it, but unfortunately the powers that be still have people in such a state of being mesmerized that there is no outrage. Uh, it's as though our people just sit back lethargically and accept things. And that ties into exactly what you said. You see, I believe that they were expecting the Maya to sit back and say, oh, okay, well, you know, you want, you want to drill in the, the national park. Well, that's no problem. Just give us what, what, what you want to give us. And the Maya are standing up. They're making their voices be heard. And more Belizeans need to do that on many different levels and platforms. Where you see injustice, you have to speak up. The reason why this country is in the, in yes. in the no condition that it's in right now is because people are too laid back. They sit back, they curry political theorems, they want handouts, and they treat these elected individuals as though they are some sort of God. And in order for these to move forward, we they have can, to get out of that mindset. Well, Paco, they can make the argument. I'm pretty sure he's going to make an effective argument saying disagree with my position, but. My thing is, is, if you are in a sensitive position, no less the Speaker of the House of Representatives, just imagine in, in the United States, in, in a constitutional democracy where if Mr. Barack Obama, he's an attorney, right? He, he went so he, you know, he's him and his wife. They're poverty and Hill, highly trained attorneys. He could, what if he was still the President of the United States and still having, well, I don't know if I'm going to quit this, but the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the Congress of the United States, they're attorneys. Yeah. What if he was still represented? In, in public, in private life, clients that can potentially come before, that can have matters that need to be litigated, or have matters that, or, or have customers, uh, 
issues that can come up in front of our Congress. It's a blatant, you know, it's a blatant and open to me conflict of interest because how can you how can you say how can you say that that that, that, that you can be impartial when you have when you have a a, a, a matter that when as far as the Supreme Court to to the, to the to CCJ and now you're litigating it again and you are the speaker of the house and you are acting as, on behalf of those of those bodies that the government it favors and you're going to tell me that you're going to try to curry some sort of how can I trust that? It has to be an appearance of impropriety here, and, and that man should recuse himself. If not, if not uh, voluntarily, he should be made to recuse himself because he. I am not comfortable with him being the speaker of the. He should give up one of those jobs. Either he resign as the house, as speaker of the house of representatives, and go do his private job if that's what they want to do. But he cannot wear both hats as far as I'm concerned. If he, and this is the kind of ethical concern why we have the kind of corruption in public life. And we don't, we, as an, as an example, because we allow those individuals who have a fiduciary responsibility to us, the public, the government, we, we, we are the government, we hire them to do, to do those things, and then he's going to go and argue for this capital oil and also be the speaker of the house. And that's my argument. My argument is that it's wrong. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I mean, there is absolutely no question that something like that would not happen in the United States. And again, it ties into the lack of checks and balances here in our system of government. Total lack of checks and balances. Well, you know, another thing, and another thing too with this regime here, and I don't, I don't want to, I'm not here, look, I'm not here trying, nobody, I don't send me no inbox because I'm not here trying to denigrate, you know, this government. Because like you said, this is also a continuation of more of the same since independence. Nothing unique that we're discussing here that these people are doing. It's just a continuation of the same. But look at this the part with the bank. This, this, okay, the, the Belize Bank. Well, the, the Bank of Belize. Is that what it's called? Well, what was it, the bank? Help me National Bank of Belize. The bank that all. The National Bank of Belize, yes. In theory, yes. And, I, and I must say that in theory, when it came out, I was, I was, I was on my blog blogging that, yes, I support it, and I thought it was an excellent idea, blah, blah, blah. But now, but I, again, I said, you know what, I don't want to be critical because I, I'm as a policy analyst. I want to look at public policy and see what, what's going to provide the greatest good for the greatest number, and that's the criteria that I use. And I felt that this bank, National Bank, would have been an excellent tool if utilized properly. And a lot of, I came, to, I came with a lot of flack from a lot of supporters, people who didn't agree with certain regards here, um, until it, a whole bunch of them did not agree with my position. Very respected people, you know, who, you know, in our society who didn't agree with my position. And I say, okay, fine. But no, in retrospect, when I look at it, brother, again, it just goes to show that whenever you have these kind of things where the government is, 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 is going to be inefficient, it's going to be ineffective, it's going to be economical, and invariably it's going to bore them with nepotism, colonialism, and, and minions trying to take advantage of it. You know, because, look, the, I don't know, again, I'm not privy to the circumstances of the resignation of, um, of uh, the, the manager. Allegedly, he was delaying some loans that were supposed to go to Mr. Young, or CEO of one of the ministries. I, again, I don't have any, any, any inside information, but if he was doing his job, it sounds to me that he was essentially fined, fired, or asked to resign for doing his job. 
what does that sound like to you? Or appear to you? Well, brother, based on the, the information that I've gleaned from the newscasts and what have you, it's come across to me that it's precisely that. This man, I don't know Mr. Marin personally, but I, my understanding is that he is a seasoned banking professional. The man knows the ins and outs of the banking business. He knows uh, what it means to conduct one's due diligence appropriately. And based on what I have gleaned from the situation, it appears as though he was doing precisely that. And because he did not acquiesce to the demands of the appointed board, right, uh, with regards to certain, certain individuals, uh, my understanding is that it's the CEO in the Ministry of Science and Technology, that uh, it looked like they just circled the wagons and said, you know what, you know, we, we, we can't use you. So better you go. And that's, that is a testimony to what is wrong with this nation and this country with regards to our governance. You know, I, when I first heard about the National Bank of Belize, the first thing that came to my mind was that, you know what, oh my goodness, man, this will be our next um, social security board type situation whereby it's a slush fund. You know, my point of reference with that is with regards to um, the court base under the PUP administration. I don't know if you need number 3.34 million rings a bell, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I saw that played out within the context of the Social Security Board under the PUP. So when the Prime Minister mentioned that he's starting this National Bank of Belize, that's the first thing that came to mind. You know what? This thing will be used as a vehicle through which party hacks, cronies, and politicians themselves will be able to have some sort of legitimized facility through which to operate some of their um, investments. And, well, you know, I, I don't claim to be overly versed with regards to what the bank is doing or what it has done, but my understanding is that the bank, in principle, was set up to facilitate low- to middle-income individuals with regards to mortgages for their homes and whatnot. Now, if you look at the, the scenario involving the, the person in question, uh, Dr. Colin Young, for all intents and purposes, by virtue of being a CEO in the Ministry of Science and Technology, one would think intuitively that he does not necessarily fall within the rubric ascribed to low and middle income. And, I mean, just based on that, you would think that, okay, well, he really shouldn't be eligible for any of these uh, preferential rates. Now, when I heard the explanation provided by the Minister of Science and Technology, uh, I believe it was at the, the most recent Senate meeting, it just really, really reigns supreme in my mind the level at which individuals in this administration feel as though the ends justify the means. Because the explanation that she provided, for me at least, was wholly unsatisfactory. Just to condense what she said, I can't say it verbatim, but in a nutshell, she basically said, well, yes, there were some issues with the former general manager of the National, National Bank of Belize. Uh, the, the board voted unanimously that he should be let go. And we've moved past that now, and we have a senior assistant manager in place that is holding over, and we're putting out um, tender for 
an incoming general manager. To me, that is just a glossing over because it shows absolutely no insight with regards to what the decision um, entails, what was it based on, what was the, 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 the criterion used to say that, well, this man not cut it. You know, it, it's very, very shallow. Okay? I, I'll use that term. It's very, very shallow and believing people have to start to think more critically and call a spade a spade when it comes to these type of things. Because if a man or a woman is in their position conducting their due diligence accordingly, and up to that point, there is no question with regards to this person's um, track record in history. If he or she has broken no laws, if he or she has, has met the mandate of what they're supposed to do, then how all of a sudden you can arbitrarily just get a unanimous vote from the, the board of directors to say, well, this man has to go. Something smells fishy, man. And they always say, if it looks like a duck and it mm-hmm. looks like a duck, it must be a duck. You know? So I think that that is a terrible, well, terrible, terrible uh, situation for, the, for this nation and country, believe. Because, hey... Go ahead, Hubert. No, one would think that... Um, no, say one would think that, okay, as a CEO of, some, of one of the ministries, that you, first of all, it's a high-power contract. I'm sure it's not no chump change. I would not want to, you should not qualify for any kind of preferential or, 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 or rate or treatment that, 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 say, a teacher or a policeman or some, some, some lower-level uh, uh, bureaucrat that, that doesn't have the kind of salary that you have we are entitled to so that they can, you know, better their life, you know, their life and better their life. So I don't think that you should, you should be, you know, allowed to, to profit, or, well, not to profit, but allowed to access. But then again, that it, it, just, it just goes back to what a lot of people were predicting prior to when this, this, this bank was launched. That's exactly what is occurring. You know, you see all the minions, all the, uh, the, the, the cronies coming, lining up, want to have access to public funds at cheap and giveaway rates. At least based on at least the criteria the bank itself was made up for. I don't think any high-level bureaucrat who sits at the head of a, of a, big, of a, of a ministry should have access to, 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 to such public funding, particularly when their salary doesn't justify it. I could see a policeman, yes, a teacher, a little, sweet little bureaucrat who really needs it and that's, that's essentially I was, the argument was why the bank was set up, not for the high-power uh, individuals such as CEOs and others who essentially can go to any bank and get a loan and, 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 and have the salary to, to, to offset it. And that is where the, and that's where, again, the, 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 the impropriety or the appearance of impropriety caused people to genuinely be dismissive of these things when they see, even though the, you know, the, the, even though the bank itself, for all practical purposes, is an excellent idea, but the way immediately off the bat this occurs, it just shows that we cannot trust any government to oversee things such as this, particularly when there are no built-in safeguards to ensure that that cronies and minions don't have access to it, to, 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 uh, to, to don't have access to, to anything that they're not entitled to, at least based on salary. I mean. I just it just looks to me it 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 it, it, it it's a bad 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 way for a bank to uh, to get to, to to start off or to at least being administered so far. But 
again, like you said, that's the way things are in but um, I just saw also today, Apostle, um, that um, um, the, 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 the Prime Minister, or I mean, the President, the President of El Salvador is in town, former um, FMLN commander, Salvador Sanchez, you know, uh, I have always supported, I remember back in the Cold War days when you had the FMLN in, um, in El Salvador, and he was one of the commanders, and you had the, the, uh, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, I was always a supporter of the FMLN, and the Famundo Martin National Liberation Front uh, in, in El Salvador, and also Sandinistas in Nicaragua, they were fighting these oppressive, oligarch-type governments that, for all purposes, man, are responsible for crimes against humanity. They butchered a lot of Salvadorians. Not that government or, or, or neighbor next door, but a model that is in the same thing. The one beat a dog. I mean, in El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, the oligarch that, that controls more than 97% of the land, less than 7% own more than of all lives in those countries. And so when you have people like Daniel, Daniel Ortega and him fighting to overthrow Anastasia Samosa, a beat of Anastasia Samosa, and also in you know, some of the fighting for, you know, for the rights of the, the uh, working, poor working class campesinos, it's good to see that, you know, at least, the people of El Salvador can say, you know what, we, you know, we, you know, we have come a long way. We even had a, you know, we took refugees in as a, as a, as a, as a result of that. Um, I've talked to people on uh, uh, that some of the refugees that we took in and some of the experiences that they had um, in a war. They had to hide in a hole and all kind of thing. You know, it, 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 it wasn't pretty possible. So it's interesting to see that um, this gentleman here is visiting Belize. But I was, I am, a, I'm always a little amused. When I see these people come, because I say to myself, we know fully well that this regime that we have in part do not share the ideas of a lot of these governments. They're not progressive. <laughs> you know? Well, Hubert, if you, allow, if you allow me to chime in on this particular one, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to address what you said, but I will also add a little twist to it. And I think it should be very, very instructive with regards to Belizeans in the diaspora, right? Yes, indeed, the president-elect of El Salvador is in country or was in country the other day, about a day ago. And I find it very instructive that he chose to come to Belize. Actually, the news report states that um, unofficially, it was said that he may have met with uh, students at the University of Belize in Belmopan. Now, when I see that, you know, I, I find it very interesting for a number of reasons. First off, I'd like to say that, yes, I do recall the days of the Cold War with Nicaragua and Daniel Ortega and all that was taking place in Central America and neighboring republics, and I share your view. But I find it interesting now that this gentleman chooses to come to Belize and in particular goes to um, Belmopan, if he did, right? Yes, man, you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm tying this in because... I think it's very, very salient with regards to, one, the number of Salvadoran Belizeans that reside in Belize who are mm -hmm. Belizean citizens. Number two, and I know that Dr. Jerome Strawn would really appreciate this, I would like to see just how many of the Salvadoran Belizeans who reside here in Belize actually went back home to El Salvador to vote, right? <laughs> because actually, I know some personally that went. And within certain respects, I would, I would wager to think that a majority of the Salvadoran believers here in Belize uh, support this gentleman. 
for his party. No question. His, his name is Salvador no Sanchez Seren. And I, I just want to mm-hmm. kind of, I, I kind of want to juxtapose that situation onto the Belizean diaspora situation, right? Now, here we have a situation whereby you see there's a sizable community in, in Belopan, actually South, Salopan area of Belopan, whereby, <clears throat> excuse me, they are dual national, and they're allowed to go back to their country of origin to cast their votes or whatnot. In terms of whether or not they are able to run in elections, I'm not sure. I'd have to do some research on that. But it's just very, very important to note, especially when we're talking about the issue of Belizeans in the diaspora, whether you be in Canada, the United States, the UK, or where have you, to be granted full electoral rights. Trust me, this man didn't come to Belize just because he may be a courtesy call on the deputy prime minister and the prime minister yeah. of the country. Because you, as you rightly so strategic, said, strategic I'm, quite, yeah, man, I'm quite certain he does not share the ideology of, of these, uh, the powers that be here. I believe it was a strategic move by him to make a showing in Belize to his people in their diaspora. You know? And That's if you give him. Yeah, man. And if you connect the dots, I think it's quite clear. So I'm glad you brought that up, and that's kind of my take on it, you know. I'm glad to see that the, the ebb and flow within Central America and the Central American republics are changing, are changing so much so that uh, a former guerrilla commander like himself can be elected in El Salvador. At one point, that was uh, unheard of, you know. It would have been And you say what it is. Well, it was a Ronald election, too, because I think what happened was that they had to go back twice. And this is what we're talking about, the vote by proxy. Most loads of El Salvadorians jumped on some buses right here from um, in Belize of, of uh, West and went to vote in the election in El Salvador. And they reside in Belize. They believe him. But again, again, it's instructive to us because since we are dual nationals, we, the voting is not the issue for us because we can do that. We can, we can, we, if we can get to Belize, we can vote. But, but, uh, I, but I know also El Salvador, I, I believe, has voted by proxy. And I know that, and I also know that come election time, plain loads come from the side to, uh, oh, yeah. to vote. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know for a fact. So it's, 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 it's not that they do that. You know, it's nothing new. But, but it, it, I think what Louis Wade, Wade, one of the points yesterday, he was saying that, that he thinks that's illegal because all these people that reside, that they indicate that Salvadorian. A lot of them have relatives back in, in Salvador, I'm sure of that. A lot of us have relatives right here in the league. So the, he, his take was on that um, why should that happen because what about the, the address? That, you know, where do these people live? He said he have information that, that can show that um, some of these people are just giving any address arbitrarily or have one house with like five addresses. For, you know. So I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some certain degree of um, the clarity that needs to be shed on it, no doubt. And I, I don't, I don't disagree with him on that. But, but what, what, what it's instructive that that these people get the opportunity to register their vote. And he, in a sense, the, Mr. Salvador uh, Serin came here to probably show his his thanks, to thank them for it. You know, because who knows? He could have been uh, all the there, believe the all the Salvadorans in his diaspora that put him over the hump. You were talking exactly. about exactly. Exactly, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, that that also ties into the whole concept of the worth of the diaspora. 
And, you know, I, I have said it before, I'll say it again. Now that Belizeans in the diaspora like yourself and others um, throughout the length and breadth of North America have brought this issue to the fore, I will go on record to say that I seriously doubt that if either the two major political parties even get an inclination that the majority of people in the diaspora are inclined to vote separate and apart from traditional party allegiance and to embrace a new paradigm, trust me, they will not actively support granting full electoral rights for believers in the diaspora. Because the bottom line, the name of the game for these two political parties is to maintain the status quo, to maintain control, and to maintain influence. That is in no way I, you know, to discourage you, because I believe that it's your birthright is something that you need to fight for, and God willing, between the Belizeans abroad and the Belizeans here who understand the dynamic, we will get this thing through. But it's very, very important to note the significant role played by diaspora communities when it comes to issues of mm-hmm. governance and also politics and electoral politics. It's, it's quite succinct and quite interesting. You know, that, 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 I'm going to brought up that point because in the brief, we don't have a lot of time. I have like maybe like three or four minutes there, but I, I want to just touch on that very briefly. The fact that, you know, we are saying they're willing, this, is, this is, seems to be the, the mindset right now. They're willing to deny everybody, including us, a lot of denials. And I'm saying deny everybody else and include us. All the other, everybody else, I mean, the, 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 the penners and the ones and all of them. Deny them. Don't deny them actual one religion. But they're willing to place all of us in one bucket, deny everybody, yes, but including us in actual one religion from access to the, to the electoral process in, 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 the, in the spirit of saying, oh, you'll be fair. Again, I, okay, I, on the surface, I really don't have any problem with it, but when I really look, when I really pull off the strippers of its, of its skin and I look at, into the layers of it, I say, okay, I have an issue with it only because I'm a naturalized Belizean. I shouldn't fall under that category with a, a naturalized world national or other a naturalized world national, particularly Guatemala world national. You know, so but again, their idea, their willing seems to they seem to be this the, the, um, this groundswell of support that yes, we'll deny everybody else, but but at the same time you deny me too. But other fairness are still being fine. That's what you wanted. I can look at it and say okay, maybe yes, but. But my thing is, let's include everybody then, if that's the case. Don't deny anyone. Just include us. And we have the same rights and we're good to go. That's the other point then. And that seems to be the argument a lot of my, my people in the diaspora wants to make that, okay, fine, we don't want to deny anyone. Just include us as part of the, as part of the community and then we're good to go. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, that's my thought on that. But, but I mean, like I said, it's a struggle. It's a long struggle for us to go, and I, I apologize to everybody else for all the, um, we had some serious technical difficulties with our Skype. Finally, we got it cleared up, and we were able to have a decent and productive conversation with Paco. Um, this is my last week in the lead. Um, I had a very productive day here in, this, in the country, uh, hands-on, to see and observe and to witness firsthand um, what's happening in this country, and I'm I, you know, again, I'm not, you know, I have my friends like Paco, Will Mejia, and others who were tight. And I just wanted to say, Paco, that it's been a pleasure, my brother. You know, it's been a pleasure. And um, 
to rely on your resources, your intellect, and your and you know how how this country works and how what makes it move and what you know some of the things that impact it. And it's always a pleasure to talk to Brother Parker Smith. He's always well informed. He's on point, and he knows exactly. Very few understand beliefs about the policy like the way Parker Smith does. That's why I, when I was here, I relied on him. I brought him on twice because. This is this is who I wanted to be my analyst while I was here to discuss many issues with. So, Brother Paco, I want you to have a wonderful Saturday, and we'll talk soon. All right, I'll talk. I'll connect with you in a minute. Off record, all right? Yes, man. Well, Hubert, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And um, also, I just want to add one thing. Um, Let us not forget about the illegal logging that's taking place. Make it quick, Paco. Make it quick. Yeah. Brother Wilma here, just wanted to give a shout out saying, let's keep eye on the illegal logging because it's happening right under our noses. Thanks, thanks a lot, Hubert, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, everybody, thank you very much. Do the right thing.